0: Well, take your Bibles once again and turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, a series we began a few weeks ago. We took a break last week for Easter Sunday, but we're back this morning. And I want you to know, sincerely from my heart, I have been deeply encouraged by what God has taught me from this text this week. Uh, I preach best. I, I would assume anyone preaches best. When before I give it to you, it's been given to me, and I'm not just reciting something to you, but I am telling you what God has been stirring up in my heart, and that's what happens, Lord willing, every week, but particularly this week, I just feel like the Lord really used this text to stir something up in my heart, and I've been very excited to share that with you this morning. So listen attentively. I believe God has something good, helpful, life-changing for us today. Now let me remind you of the context of Psalm 23. It really matters in order for us to really understand what is happening here. Psalm 23 is in the middle of three messianic psalms, meaning psalms that are pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. They're prophetic pictures of what Jesus will do. So Psalm 22 is a prophetic picture of the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Him being forsaken by the Father so that we might be accepted by the Father. Psalm 22 is Jesus suffering for our justification to make us righteous before God the Father. Psalm 24 is a prophetic picture of Jesus ruling and reigning. uh, The heavens opening, the king of glory coming in, establishing his kingdom once again on earth. Psalm 24 is Jesus fully saving us in our glorification, our salvation being complete in Psalm 24 when Jesus returns and rules and reigns. So in the middle of that is Psalm 23, which is also a prophetic picture of Jesus but it's a prophetic picture of what it looks like to receive the invitation to follow Jesus. This is the invitation of Jesus right now. Trust me, trust that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Trust that there is no life outside of me. There's no way to God but through me. I alone am the perfect sacrifice for your sins and then follow me. That's the invitation of Jesus. Psalm 23 shows us what it's like to follow Jesus. It is Jesus leading us in our sanctification, justification, becoming a Christian, sanctification, walking with Jesus, glorification, the completion of our salvation when Jesus takes us home. All those are prophetic picture of Jesus Christ. And Psalm 23 is about Jesus right now, in this moment, today, leading us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, understanding Psalm 23 that way helps us because it reminds us that this exists as a practical chapter to help us know what it looks like to follow Jesus right now, today. Now, this morning, we're gonna focus our attention on three sentences, three sentences. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor Josh, the first week, you did like five words, the second week, four words, and now three sentences. Well, not so quick. We're gonna take a little bit of time on this, but look at the three sentences in Psalm 23, two and beginning of three. It says this, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Three sentences, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. Now, the more I have looked at these passages and these sentences, the more I've Prayed to understand them, the more I realized how connected they actually are. That what you have is three themes in these three sentences. To to put it in a memorable way, you could say that verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures, is about rest. You could say that verse two at the end, he leads me beside still waters is about refreshment. And verse three, he restores my soul, is about restoration. Rest refreshment and restoration. Now, the truth is, is we have to understand how these three work together. And I'm gonna spend two weeks on this, but I'm gonna go ahead and give you right now the connection between these three sentences. The connection is simply this, that rest and refreshment are the pathway to restoration. Rest and refreshment are the pathway of restoration. God, in order to continue his restoration work in us, continues to invite us into rest and refreshment. Now, I'm going to preach this morning this backwards. I'm going to preach this morning, verse three, he restores my soul. And the reason is simple is because unless we understand what it means for God to restore our soul, we will never accept his invitation into rest and refreshment. We'll not see our need for rest and refreshment until we understand how those two things give us a healthy, well-functioning, life-giving, God-enjoying soul. God wants to restore our souls and he does that continued work through rest and refreshment. So this morning, I want to talk about our soul, what it is, what it means, and how it is that God restores it. I am really excited about the word that God has for us this morning. So I want to begin a little bit at the beginning and I want you to hold on, listen carefully. I think if you come to understand this truth, it is absolutely life-transforming. God created us as a body and a soul. We know this from Genesis chapter two, verse seven, where it says this, Genesis 2, seven. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That word creature is the exact same word for soul in Psalm 23, three. So what he's saying in Genesis 2 is that God created a form. He created out of dust a man. But that man was just an empty form. He was just a body. There was no life in that man until God breathed his life into that man. And when God breathed breathed life into that man, he became a living soul. The ESV says has, here, here says creature, but it is the word that is used in Psalm 23 for soul. Nefesh is the Hebrew word. That man became a living being when the very breath of God was breathed into him and he became a living soul. Which means this. We are body and soul. We are material and immaterial. There is an outer part of us and an inner part of us. There is a seen part of us and an unseen part of us. There is a flesh and blood and there is an inward life. Both of those things are a part of who we are. But who we really are, our mind, our will, and our emotions is the soul that is in us. Adam did not come alive until that soul was placed in him. He was just a form. And so it is, we are only a form without our soul. Our soul is who we really are. So all of your thoughts, your intentions, your desires, your ambitions, your affections, all of that is coming from your soul. God created us body and soul, an outer life and an inner life. Now you'll remember that God told Adam and Eve that if they sinned, they would surely die. That's exactly what happened. But in the same way that we are body and soul, so it is that the death they experienced was both a death of body and soul. The first death they experienced was a death of the soul. There was an inward death in Adam and Eve, a very real, a very noticeable death an extremely consequential death was experienced at that moment. That's why they ran and hid in shame because what happened at that moment is that the very life of God in them had died. In the moment in which they sinned, they were alienated from God, they were separated from God, they had lost the presence of God in them. The very life of God which was in them, which made them experience perfect life and perfect peace and perfect joy was gone because they had sinned, that inner life, that life of God died. Now, when the inner life died, the outer life began to deteriorate, and eventually Adam and Eve would have physical deaths. So it is in Romans chapter five that it says we are united with Adam in his death. Which death? Both. We're united with Adam in his spiritual death, and we are united with Adam in his physical death. We will die Physically, It's a consequence of sin. But do you know that before we ever die physically, we have died spiritually? This makes sense of Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians says this, is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are actually born dead. Meaning that the moment that you come into this world and have physical life, so there is a form, a visible form, your body is there. At that moment, there is also death inside. Life on the outside, death on the inside. Visible life and visible death. That's the reality in which we are born into. Now, that's exactly why Jeremiah seventeen nine says this. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. That heart is a reference to our soul, our inner man. The reason is, is because our souls are, apart from God, are godless. We are born with this soul created by God and for God, but void of God. And so Jesus, trying to help the religious leaders of his day understand why their outward actions were not enough, says this. He says, out of our hearts comes murder, adultery, immorality, theft, and on and on and on. Where is all this stuff coming from? Where is the immorality and the theft and the adultery? Where is it coming from? It's coming from a godless, lifeless, dead soul. The most important part of you, that part created by God, that part that exists for God, that it might have in it the very life of God, is void of God. This is exactly why St. Augustine said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. When we say that an unbeliever is lost, what we mean is this, is that there is a very real lostness, a lifelessness about a person who does not know Jesus Christ. And until you come to know Jesus Christ, you will never have the life of God in your soul. We're born physically alive, spiritually dead, outer life, inward death. So with that in mind, Psalm 23:3 says this, he, the good shepherd Jesus restores our souls. Now this is incredible, this is absolutely incredible. That word restores is a really special word used throughout the Old Testament to refer to a withered hand that is restored back to the way it should be, or an exiled people who are restored to the place that they are supposed to be, it is a word that means that something is returned back to its original state. If you've ever restored a car The goal of that restoration was to bring it back to its original state. It may or may not have happened that way, but if you're restoring a car, that's the goal. You wanna bring it back to its original state. So it is that when Psalm 23.3 says, God restores our soul, what it means is this. It's God's desire is to bring our souls back to their original state where they are filled with the very life of God that Adam and Eve experienced before sin entered into the world. What that means is the moment in which you give your life to Jesus Christ. When you trust that Jesus alone is the way to the Father and there is no other way. When you come to the realization that your good works are never enough to get you to God. Why? Because you're dead spiritually and no amount of good works can make you alive spiritually. When you come to realize that only Jesus has life and only Jesus has truth, and you trust his death on the cross as the payment for your sin, and you surrender your life to him, at that moment, the very life of God comes into your soul. This is the whole point of Romans eight. I would encourage you to go sometime today and read Romans eight. The very life of God by his spirit comes into the soul of the one who gives their life to Jesus Christ. This is how we understand John three. Jesus says to Nicodemus, You must be born again. And then he says this that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, body, and soul. There is a fleshly birth but there also must be a spiritual birth. And that's exactly what happens, that at the moment you come to Christ, the very life of God doesn't just awaken your soul, it brings life into your dead soul. So that soul created for God to house the very life of God, which is now godless because of sin, once again through Jesus Christ, has the very life of God by his spirit again. If you grew up around church, you might have heard the phrase soul winning. We don't use it as much as we used to. We might ought to start again. But when we talk about evangelism, we talk about winning souls. As a matter of fact, on my father's tombstone, it is his favorite verse, Proverbs 11.30, which says this, he who winneth souls is wise. It's my father's favorite verse. My father was an evangelist. He loved to lead people to Jesus Christ. He felt that God put him on earth as an evangelist, and he was very effective that way. But by winning souls, what we mean is helping souls come to experience once again the life of God. Before we went to two services, one of my favorite parts of Sunday morning, and I was able to do this for over a year, was every morning to get here early, to stand at door C, and just to welcome everybody as they came in for Sunday school or community groups. I loved those moments. I miss those moments. And the thing I miss about two services, about having one service, is I just miss being able to greet everybody. One of the things I miss is almost every week seeing a dear, faithful church member, Leonard Hampton, walk in on Sunday morning. And Brother Leonard, every single week, would come up to me, and he would get my eyes, and he would come right up to me and get close and shake my hand, and he would say, Pastor, five souls this week, five souls. I'd see him the next week. He'd catch my eye, he'd make a beeline for me and say, Pastor, four souls this week, four souls. There's rarely a week which Leonard Hampton doesn't lead somebody to Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is this, Pastor, I shared the gospel and by the power of the message of the gospel itself, I saw five souls receive the life of God and be born again. Think about it this way. John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. Everything in Psalm 23 is pointing us to Jesus. This idea of the life of God was big for John. There may be no place you could go to read more about the life of God in the soul of man more than the book of John. So John 1, it says, in him was life, Jesus. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, say it out loud with me, eternal life. Jesus came that we might have life John 4, Jesus says that if you would drink of the water I give you, then you would have a well of water welling up inside of you, water of eternal life. John 5, Jesus says, it is the son that gives life to whom he wills. And John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. It is the spirit that gives life. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life. Jesus is that very life of God that we were created to have. And when we come to know him, we receive that life. This is why back to John 10, Jesus says, the thief, the devil, he comes to kill still and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. At the moment you come to know Christ, the very life of God comes back into your soul. Now, let me give you some even better news. If it could get better, here it is. Psalm 24 points us to the day in which Christ will return. And his desire when he returns and what he will accomplish is bring us back to life as it was meant to be. The story ends the way the story begins. And so it is, our body and souls will be made new, complete, perfect. Our bodies matter because we're gonna have them again someday. They will be perfect. And in the new heavens, in the new earth, we will have perfect bodies and perfect souls. We will be glorified with him. We will be complete. Life as it was meant to be. That's coming. I can't wait. But until that moment, even if we know Jesus Christ and the very life of God is in us, there's a battle for our soul. Even if Christ has taken dominion over our soul, what it means for the kingdom of God to come into your life is that Christ has staked his claim on your soul. He said, this one is mine, I am the king here. I rule and reign here. But even in that, we still live in a broken world, we are still sinful people, the old man is still welling up inside of us, we're still struggling with sin. There is a war, as long as we live in this earth, for our souls this is why first peter two eleven says this abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against your soul do you know what sin does sin is a war against your soul that soul that has been so restless that soul that has been so lifeless which now has the very life of god every time we're sinning we're letting the enemy come into our soul it's waging war against our soul This is why in Ephesians chapter six when it talks about spiritual warfare, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the demonic forces in the heavenly places and what they're waging war on is our soul. And all the physical parts that we experience of spiritual warfare are just a means by which the enemy wants to discourage our soul, to hurt and affect our soul. John Bunyan, uh, who is known for his book The Pilgrim's Progress, wrote another book called The Holy War. The whole book is a picture of our soul as a walled city. And what you have outside of our soul are all of these enemies that are coming in to try to attack our soul. And even worse than that, inside the walled cities, there's all these traitors. There's all these traitors that must be found and exposed. That's our life right now. We are a walled city. We are in the kingdom of God, but yet outside of the city, all these things trying to attack our souls, the world, the flesh, the devil, and then inside of us, there are things that are welling up just apart from all the external forces, just the internal forces that are trying to take down our soul. This is why that the Lord, before he took the people into the promised land in Deuteronomy 4, he stops. He stops. And he knows that the life in the promised land will be a life of goodness and abundance. And he says this in Deuteronomy 4, 9, above all things, before you go into the land, watch your soul diligently. I love the words of that great hymn in which it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I, I, I so appreciate that because I love Jesus. I, I want Jesus. I want nothing more than the life of Jesus. I have tasted and seen how good it is to walk with Jesus. It's better. But yet I, I'm prone to wander every day. Every day I feel the attack on my soul and so many times I give in to the attack of my soul when what Jesus is trying to do is bring life and all of a sudden by sin, and temptation, I am bringing death once again into my soul. But here's the truth, is that as we walk with Jesus day by day, moment by moment, trusting him, following him, being intimate with him, he continues to restore our soul. This is why 2 Corinthians 4.16 says that our outer man is decaying. I feel that. Do you feel that? Do you feel your outer man decaying? But our inward man is being renewed, Day by day. The truth of Psalm 23.3 is that God, yes, he comes and stakes claim to our soul. He brings his life. He brings us new life. We become a new creation, but there is a battle that is still being waged for our soul, and what God does as we walk with him is he day by day continues to restore that soul back to its original state. He does that primarily through rest and refreshment, and we're gonna look at that extensively next week, Lord willing. But this morning, I just want to make sure that you understand the most important part of you is your soul. There is nothing that matters more than the health and well-being of your soul. And it's so interesting because the reason the soul tends to get less attention is because it is the unseen part of us. But in reality, it's not the unseen part of us because all of your affections, and all of your temptations, and all of your desires, and all of your wants, and all of your emotions, and all of your moods, all of this stuff, you know where that's coming from? Your soul. So as much as you want to, you can neglect your soul and act as if your soul is not there, but just know this, either life or death is coming from your soul, and it's coming out of you to everyone else around you. The health of your soul is what's gonna determine what happens outside of you. So let me ask you this one question this morning. How much attention are you giving to your soul? That most important part of you that exists for the very life of God, how much time and attention are you giving to the care of your soul? I keep thinking all week about that warning of, Jesus in Matthew eight thirty six and 37, I, it's very heavy with me this week, in which he says this, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You realize this is what the vast majority of people in the world are doing. They're gaining the world. What, what, is, what does that mean? Well, stuff, physical stuff. They're just trying to gain more things. Houses, cars, computer finances, physical forms, whatever it is, they're just trying to gain more. But in so doing, they are neglecting their soul. So at the end, they gain the world, but they lose their soul. And Jesus says, what does it profit someone if they get the world? Let's say they go for it and they get it. They got everything, everything. The whole world is theirs. But they lost their soul. It means absolutely nothing. Because it doesn't a profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul. And so why is it? Why is it that the part of us that matters the most gets the least amount of attention? The part of us that matters the most seems to get the least amount of attention. I love what John Piper says. Listen to this. He says, our modern world is massively preoccupied with the inconsequential. Our modern world is massively preoccupied with the inconsequential. We are consumed with that which doesn't matter the most while at the same time our soul is suffering. It's hard for me to put into words this morning how burdened I am about this for you and for me. You know, Hebrews 13, seven says that it's the pastor's calling to watch over your souls. I feel that this week. I feel that my responsibility is is to get you to stop trying to gain the world and, and to save your soul, to give attention to your soul. I keep thinking about my role as a parent. And I think about how easy it is without ever saying this, listen carefully, without ever saying anything about this, to teach my kids to gain the world, but to lose their soul. I can push them in academics, I can push them in athletics, I can push them to be a better them and all of those things are good and right. I want them to do well at what they do. I want them to focus and work hard and give their attention to everything God has called them to. But listen, if all I'm doing is pushing them in those areas and never talking to them about their soul, I am teaching them to gain the world and lose their soul. So as a parent, I must give greater attention to that which matters most in my child. It is the soul of my child, it is the soul of your child, of your spouse, your husband and wife, that matters most. Some of you this morning are like the woman at the well. The woman at the well where you are trying to fix a soul problem with a body solution. The woman at the well had a soul problem. She was hungry and she was thirsty, so her attempt to fix it was a man and a man and a man and a man and another man but you cannot fix a soul problem with a body solution. And so it is, some of you have a very hungry and thirsty soul. It is a restless soul because it has not yet found its rest in Jesus Christ. I want to plead with you to right now, give your life to Jesus. Surrender to his lordship over your life. Let him stake his claim in your soul. Let him bring you to new life. This is what it means to be born again. It is possible right now for you to simply call upon the name of the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be saved. I trust you. And in that moment, have the very life of God come and bring new life into your spiritually dead soul. Right now, you can do that. Some of you, have done that, but some of you are really struggling right now. I think maybe even more so in this moment where you're stuck at home and maybe things that you've tried to ignore you can't run from anymore. Some of you are struggling with anger and hate and addiction and resentment and it is deep and heavy in you. Listen to me, those are soul issues. Those are soul issues. So instead of trying to fix all of those things by changing your external circumstance, give attention to the health of your soul. I believe what God wants to do in these moments is wake you up to the reality that nothing matters more than a life-giving Savior who puts his life in your soul that you might once again be restored to the life that God has for you. And you might have a healthy soul. By receiving him and walking with him day after day, moment by moment, allowing him to do his restoring work every single moment to trust and follow the good shepherd who has promised you he will restore your soul.